of the Things We Do podcast, a podcast about film life, television, culture, mental health, and all of that fun, jazzy stuff. Today, I've got a special guest and friend all the way in London, who I've known for a fair few years now, surprisingly, um, my friend Isabel Dixon. Hello, Izzy. Hello. Hi. Nice to see you. I know. Nice to see you. I mean, like, I find it funny, and I always say this, you know, when I know people, you know, and I've watched people evolve for like five or six years, is I... And, you know, whether it's not through the wonderful world of social media, um, we've sort of seen the growth uh, of each other's careers through, you know, uh, you know, socials and everything. And I think um, what's always astounded me about you, especially, like, is how much you've grown as a person since I remember watching the edit rushes of the first ever film I did, I saw of you in, which I had to edit. <laughs> that is like, yeah, feels like eons ago. So yeah, like because you remember, do you remember like for anyone who doesn't know what I'm talking about, I'm talking about the film Waiting, or you know, in the Waiting Room, which fear uh, was uh, directed by um, Lucas Kroll. Um, yeah, I would now believe is in Germany doing um, other things, and then but yeah, it was kind of this short indie film. And you were kind of this meek kind of girl and then went psycho crazy, which tends to be where you go with characters. Would you agree? That's so funny you've noticed that. I do tend to get cast in the innocent, sweet, like Harvard student who turns into a psycho killer. I don't know why. Yeah. I think it's because I've got big eyes or expressive eyes. I don't know. <laughs> um, was that... Because how old were you when you did that? How old were you at the time? I think that was my first short film um, in acting school. So that was 2015 in my last year of acting school. I was trying to do as many short films as I possibly could. Wow. I can't, I thought our first film together was When We Were Younger. So that was, it was waiting. No, I, I knew about When We Were Younger because I was talking to Spike about When We Were Younger and uh, Spike Hogan and uh, he... I remember that was filmed at our mutual friend Sage's house, mm. um, which, believe me, I sat down with her later and it was just a debacle, like the setup and everything. It was like clearly, you know, very well set out production. But I mean, obviously one of those productions that you just go, oh, because it's so elaborate. Um, mm. In and I think they blew a fuse. The technicians blew a fuse in one of her sockets. So that was fun. I remember Sage having a great time about that. But the film itself is great. Yeah. Well, you know, like, because you obviously had a real location. You had a real, and, you know, obviously Spike knows how to direct and write. Yeah. And just conjure up ideas. He is a, a magnificent wizard. Yeah, he is. Um, very much takes after his parents. Uh, in that regard, it's kind of like natural genes uh, in him. And I, I think, yeah, but I remember him sitting me down and talking about that one. And I actually, like, I, I do remember him talking about you when we were having coffee one day. And he was just like, God, is he's amazing. Like, he would just <laughs> talk to you to the sun's, uh, you know, goes down. It was so nice. Oh, um, he's so beautiful. But yeah, and I mean, like, you know, that. That feels like, yeah, that was, 20, was 2014, 2015, that sort of as well. So that is seven years ago. God, I can't believe I've been doing it this long. Wow. <laughs> I mean, you know, because you just recently, um, you know, released the the short film that you did, mm -hmm. um, which is by um, Bipolar. And I, it, I remember when you, I remember when the campaigns and stuff came about that. 
And one of the things that I, I think uh, not a lot of people, because you talked about, you know, that film is kind of a real sort of like inside in your own head, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Based on my personal experiences over the past seven years, for sure. Accumulation of um, various mental health experiences and like, yeah, it was very scary to um, write it and then do that campaign, campaign, like you said, um, like I, I had to, uh, I got some advice from another actress who became public about her bipolar disorder in order to um, release her own campaign for her own short film. So it was, it was so scary, but best thing I ever did for sure. Yeah. Cause I think, I think the one thing, and I commend you enormously on it is coming out and, and saying that, and, you know, just saying, this is what I have. This is a short film about my own like allegorical or, you know, contextual experiences with it in the way I perceive it and, you know, really going for it because not a lot of people do that, um, especially about bipolar, which I think is a very mis- misdiagnosed condition. Um, you know, do you, do you still feel that when people talk to you about bipolar that they get it completely wrong on how you've experienced it? Oh, God, yeah, it's ridiculous. People have this idea that people with bipolar I hate to use this word but they're crazy they're unstable and I mean like that's Mm. part of it but it's not all of it and even in what really bugs me is that in film and tv people with bipolar they're in the psych ward and there's you know they can't be trusted and no one can relate to them because they're on this whole nother level and it's not like that like yeah I'm I have a great stable job. I go to the gym. I have all these other hobbies and experiences and I I pursue my creative endeavors. So it just really bugs me that there's so much mis- misrepresentation out there about this. And it, I think part of it, like film and TV really needs to step it up and get some accurate representations going because that's how people know about it, right? Yeah. Because, I mean, like, when when did you find out you were diagnosed with it? Oh, my God. It was wild. Um, So it was quite a long journey. I say long, but some people take 30 years to get diagnosed, which to me is absolutely mm. terrifying. So, I mean, I'm 28 now, so I was quite young to um get diagnosed. So um, for the first couple of years, um, I was diagnosed with depression, so misdiagnosed, and then... Um, after a few years talking with a psychi- uh, psychologist um, and getting some further mental health treatment, I was diagnosed with bipolar type 2 in 2017. Yeah. And then there were a couple of years of, you know, what is this? Is this accurate? Is this true? And then, bam, it's all, yeah, it's where I am. Wow. I mean, like, that's that's, that's wild. that Because, that, you know, the fact, because I know being even diagnosed at a reasonable age, especially for a woman, is not a true thing. It's like women are kind of overlooked in terms of the mental health. Yeah. Um, or pretty, you know, was that something that also bothered you when you were kind of like diagnosed? Was it, Did it feel like to you in some ways? Um, it was really terrifying. I remember I was sitting in the office of my psychologist at the time mm. And he said to me, he was like, do you ever have periods where you feel elevated? And I was like, yes. And do you ever feel so happy and and creative? And he listed off all these things. And I was like, yes, I absolutely, like that sounds exa- exactly like me. 
And he said, I think you have bipolar disorder. And I had this feeling, I remember it so vividly where my whole body just seemed to sink into the ground and I just felt numb and I had tingles all over my body. And I was devastated because I didn't know what bipolar was. All I knew about bipolar was that people were fucking crazy. Sorry to swear on your podcast. I'm so sorry. (laughs) No, I do, do. Everyone does. (laughs) Okay, cool. Um, So yeah, it was, it was really scary. Um, But now that I'm educated, now that I've lived it, 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 I don't even think about it, you know, it's whatever, you know? I mean, that's, that's brave of you as well because, and it shouldn't be brave. Like it should, you know, it should just be a a fact of life at this point when, you know, it comes to conditions, but it is, it is also brave because, you know, the fact that you own it Mm. and you're so aware of it, because I think the, the one thing, you know. It's the same with any, you know, it's the same with any condition, you know, people just assume it's like a sweeping statement. Mm. Um, and I, th- I think we come from a generation of people who I think the 90s kind of was at the tail end of how uh, well aware we were of mental health and, mm. and what that entirely meant. Um, and something I feel like a lot of people who are older than us probably say it's just we're being precious or we're being like pedantic or you know anything like that i mean like does do you find that very apparent now that you you're so grounded do you find like when people use the wrong language or like more apparent or do you just kind of flake it off um i do like to correct people when they say really horrible things about people with mental health Mm. um i really stick up for people it's quite i get really passionate about um, making sure people with mental health or mental illnesses um, are protected and nurtured, I guess is, I don't know if that's the right word, but um, I'm very defensive, I guess, um, in making sure that our stories are heard and our experiences are valid. Um, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question. No, it does. It, <laughs> I don't think it doesn't. Um, okay. I think I think that's very important because... Uh, you know, I find a lot of people don't, especially, you know, like if they've dealt with trauma themselves, not all of people in the world will, you know, deal with it according to the same rules as everyone else. But I feel like, you know, it's kind of a weird thing because I, I feel as creatives, we kind of feel like it's our um, mission to tell people and and kind of express our, you know, our true selves and, you know, um, throughout the, however that medium is, um, we all just go into our little cubby and go, okay, well, how are we going to nut out this idea and be a really accurate representation of who we are? Because mm. I've often had those conversations where, you know, like um, I remember the first time I told my mom that, you know, I suffered f- from anxiety and depression and she just automatically went, oh, is it my fault? And I'm like, no nothing about this is you um it's just kind of how my brain works and that is unfortunate but it is also something I have to deal with so I feel like that is that's just kind of the more grown-up way of approaching it but some people still in their head kind of blame themselves for people's you know like and I think yeah like whether it's genetics or where it's you know however it is a lot of people these days um, you know, need some sort of level of therapy or they need some sort of level. Like, mm. are you one of those people who believe that there are people out there who 
you know, who don't need therapy or are you the believer that ever, almost everyone needs therapy? Um, it reminds me of my acting coach, Howard Fine. He says everyone should be see a therapist. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's really benefited me. I've been super fortunate since 2014 to have a really strong mental health team of psychologists, psychiatrists, um, mental health nurses, um, and adding on to that medication, which I absolutely adore. Um, I think, I really think therapy is beneficial. Sometimes it takes a while to find the right therapist, right psychologist or psychiatrist. So one thing I say is don't be disheartened if on your first session with a psychologist you don't get the right vibe or it doesn't feel beneficial, maybe they're just not the right fit for you. So definitely keep pursuing it until you find someone. There's You can't lose anything. Like there's only everything to gain. Yeah. You know? 100% agree with that. And I think, you know, it's good to every few years change up. Yeah. Um, you know, your therapist or juggle them around. Because, um, yeah, it's you kind of... You kind of feel like you're repeating yourself a lot, especially when you get to a certain point in your life and you're kind of like, yeah. okay, well, you know, um, whether or not that's a balancing board or anything like that. Um, the one thing I also say to people is, you know, your friends are there, you know, but, um, you know, the the thing is friends will listen. Don't project onto friends, but friends will listen. Yeah. You know, that's, that's a hard thing for, so, especially when you're in your teenage years, because, you know, when we're, when we're teenagers, all we do is project. We don't rationalize we don't sort out we think we do but we don't and it's it's very much like i think one of those things and 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 i have talked about this publicly as well but i remember one of the defining moments and i look back at it and i go god that must have been really terrifying and weird to think of my young self as doing that and it be public knowledge but you know i remember telling my therapist that i had this um, you know, and if it, a trigger warning for anyone who doesn't want to hear this, but um, you know, tune out for the next fi- like a minute. But I had a knife on um on me for like probably about six months, and it was just mm-hmm. a you know a standard kitchen knife and you know like a small little blade. Um, but I remember thinking, not going to hurt anyone. This is only for me. So if I end up hating myself, this you know this is the way I can get myself and and everything. But I remember at the time when I told my therapist that. She absolutely rationalized how that thought worked. And I was like, oh my God, that's a hundred percent how I was feeling. And I say this to anyone, it's like if you go through periods of time where you think you're, you know, you're doing things that seem weird or abnormal to the rest of the society, they're probably not. They're probably just your body and your mind trying to cope with something and give yourself a choice. Because I think one of the most amazing things was she's defined it as you had it there. But you knew in the back of your mind you weren't going to use it, but you just had it. So it was like a reminder. Yeah. And it was like, okay, so that's kind of cool because then you choose life over. Whereas I think, yeah, a lot of a lot of like, um, you know, people who unfortunately, um, you know, like, and there are suicide prevention stuff, but people who have taken their own life um, tend to, it is premeditated. It is very much like it is a long thought and people who say it isn't, um, you know, I know friends who have tried and it, it's not a present conversation to have, mm. but, um, you know, you can see that years later, they've come at the other end, they've gone, oh yeah, no, that was very much mixture between hormonal and, you know, and, you know, where my mind was going, because a lot of these people were teenagers They and they feel like, you know, 
I mean, this in the nicest possible way when one of my friends probably very misdiagnosed me, but he was like, he just, he was trying to work out what I was. And he said, either you're depressed or you've got bipolar. And he was like, I just don't know. And I was mm. like, that is a broad spectrum. Um, also, don't. No. <laughs> yeah, I think you don't, um, don't diagnose your friends. Um, no. And, and it's interesting as well, because when I was officially diagnosed with anxiety and depression, it was kind of a relief, right. you know, because, it, you know, but that for me felt like on the, on the same end as you was just being like, oh, that makes more sense. And this, you know, as sucky as it is, it, it clears a lot of things because there was something about like, you know, just, I knew, you know, um, I knew when I sat down and, you know, like I fluctuate as well, but you know, like I automatically know, and I'm on medication like yourself, best thing in the world, mm-hmm. best thing I ever did, yeah. love it. But yeah, it was, it was a step because I didn't initially, I went to see a therapist for like two years and then I started medication and yeah. It wasn't per her advice. It was per my own advice because yeah. I got to a point where nothing was getting better and it was just my own brain couldn't handle the the day-to-day kind of ludicrousy of what was happening. So it needed some sort of like even out. So, um, you know, it, it, it isn't for everyone. And I, 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 but, you know, like medication for me is the best thing and it's probably going to be the thing I take until like... I die, <laughs> yeah. You know, which is the reality of it. But um, yeah, it's it is it is a kind of wake up call because I do say that yeah, there's no abnormal situation, especially you know the signs happen when we're kids. They happen when we're they more um extreme when we're teenagers, and then suddenly we can finally rationalize rationalize everything we feel when we're kind of a, a young adult, and that's when we suddenly and you know I don't I don't know if you agree with this, but I feel like even now, when I was in my late 20s, I was really kind of picking apart and knowing who I was a lot better than what I was in my early 20s and even in my mid-20s. God, yeah. Um, I had no idea who I was in my early 20s. I still don't know, but I definitely have a more of a sense of calm. But um, going back to what you said, as a teenager experiencing a lot of this stuff, um, because a lot of the research I've done says that mental health issues do come up in your in your teen years or in your early 20s that was certainly the case for me um when I was 16 that was when I first started experiencing the depressive episodes of bipolar and I thought it was normal I thought everyone felt that way I thought suicidal thoughts were normal Mm. um but I was very fortunate I told one of my friends and he was so gorgeous and he really help me understand that, okay, not everyone feels this way. This is actually quite a dangerous um, and, I, I don't know, sad experience for you. So um, if you are experiencing these thoughts as a young person or whatever age, I really encourage, like you said as well, to tell your friends if you feel comfortable, tell your family and absolutely seek professional advice. Um, don't diagnose yourself or you know I think it's quite dangerous if like young people throw out diagnoses because that can add the to stress as well because say like say I was 17 and my friend was said you know you've got this disorder that you know nothing about I think that's that adds a lot of pressure when you already are a teenager and you're already going through so much so 
make sure you see a psychiatrist or a psychologist to get a diagnosis. I think that's really important. Yeah. And I really like that you said, you know, this is not everyone thinks like that because that was the same as 100% me, which was, you know, like um, I remember telling one of my friends and, you know, like she was very much like of the same boat where she did have, you know, suicidal thoughts and everything, but she was like, not everyone feels the same way and that is okay. And Mm. I think, um, you know, she, she was great because she was one of those friends I met, um, like it was one of those friends that I knew in preschool and then rekindled in my late teens. And I was like, God, I haven't seen you in like 20 years kind of thing. And it was really nice. And I think, you know, she took me to like Buddhism classes and everything. And I think that kind of, she really taught me to kind of just embrace that side where it's like, you know, it might not be spiritual, it might not be religious or anything, but embrace that, you know, side of you where you, you are content Mm. and happy and, and the things that make you happy. And I think she was such an advocate for that. Because um, she ended up becoming a teacher and, you know, she's phenomenal oh, at it. But good, yeah. it's it's one of those things that, you know, when you're an advocate and you're, you know, trying to make sure everyone feels loved and cared for and a lot of people come, you know, you know, and, and the thing was, you know, it baffled me, but I didn't come from like, I was like, how do I feel like this? But I don't come from a dysfunctional family. I come from a very happy family, very loved, and yet. I just feel like I shouldn't exist. And that was like the most biggest conundrum of my life when I was a young kid and a teenager. I just couldn't understand. And, um, you know, I used to never tell mum and dad. And my mum would just go, oh, but you're my happy kid. You're always so happy. And it was like, I'm not, though. Yeah. Inside, I'm really not. And I think, you know, it's, it's, that's, it's, the, silent, it's the silent killer in, in a way or the silent aggressor, and it just kind of like you can come from the best ham- family households, you can come from the best life, and you still absolutely, and that doesn't take away, and I think this is the thing I say to everyone as well, that does not take away the importance of your own mental health. Do not compare yourself to others and go, oh, but they're less advantaged than me, like they're more on a disadvantage. And like, no, because of the way your brain chemicals are and the way you think, that is that is how your brain is reacting to situations and that is important. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's a hard thing. I think, yeah, I think it's really important, like you're saying, to validate your experiences and don't feel guilty. Don't say other people are worse off than me. So I shouldn't be, mm-hmm. I shouldn't be feeling this way or I shouldn't be talking about my problems because other people have it worse off than me. No, your experiences are valid. Your life matters. You are important. You know, you d- you deserve to be happy. Mm. So, yeah, you know, get the help. You know. Yeah, yeah. I love, I love that. I also just, I, you know, it just. I think one of the things that you know I love about you, especially just as a human being, <laughs> is that you know, like you are this person who is just like so positive. Um, you know about about these things. You're you're such an advocate you know, in the the world of like everyone is, you know, comes from somewhere and that's the importance is making everyone feel welcomed. And that, you know, I think that's hard for, you know, some people, especially, you know, um, but yeah, the fact that you can take it outside and just go, okay, well, how do we approach this and how do we, 
because you're such a you're so you're just so good with people. You're so kind oh, and considerate with people. That's so nice. Thank you so much. <laughs> I really, I really make an effort because I, I love people. I love um meeting people, yeah. hearing people's stories, and um, I'm a nurturer. Like I want to, I, I'm the person at a party. If someone's crying in the corner, I will go up to them and I will have a two hour conversation to make them feel better. That's what fills me with joy. I, I don't know if it's selfish, but um, yeah. Thank you. That's really nice. No, I love that about you. I mean, I. <laughs> I mean, was this always kind of, I'm going to go back to acting as well, because was this kind of the thing that kind of drove you into acting was your own kind of upbringing or where did it start? Where did you kind of feel like this was your trajectory? Um, I was six years old and I just moved to a new school and I saw these kids performing poems on stage at assembly and they were the speech and drama kids. And I said to my mom, I want to be doing that. So from six years old, I was doing drama classes, speech and drama classes, I knew this is what I want to do. This is what fuels me. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. And um, I, you know, I did a lot of other things. I was very academic, very sporty in high school, but I was always doing drama. That was always what fueled me. I went to university. I studied communications, but I was president of the drama society and I was putting on plays and doing films. And it was... Once I graduated university, um, two weeks after my graduation, I moved to Sydney to go to acting school. And that was 2014 um, and was one of the best decisions I made. Wow. I mean, that's fantastic because, I mean, like, you've had such a drive for so long (laughs) to do it. Mm. I mean, and, you know, through trials and tribulations. (laughs) um, I mean, because the films that – you know, I've seen Izzy in um, are a lot of her, a lot of her films. But I remember, like, when you know, particularly after Waiting, after we did Waiting, was Ravenswood, oh. which I remember going to the big, big premiere. <laughs> I like your reaction to that, the big premiere. Yeah. <laughs> what was, what was your thoughts and your experiences with that? Because that must have been a very interesting time. You know, because that was your first big feature, wasn't it? That was my first feature film. Yeah, that was 2016. Um, a month after I graduated acting school, I landed this gig, and it was incredible. I got to. It was a really fast shoot. I think it was a two week shoot. I met one of my best friends, Shane Savage, um, on set. He taught me so much about acting, and he introduced me to Howard Fine, which is the method that I use now. Um, one of the best things I ever did. I learned so much. Um, you know, I don't, yeah, it was a really great opportunity. Yeah. It's a very, like, I, I don't know how many people have seen it. It's a very surreal film. I think. It's niche. It's definitely it's not everyone's cup of tea, but, but we, we all have to start somewhere. Oh God. Yeah. And I think my favorite was sitting, I was in between our mutual friends, Sage Spike and Sage's partner, Liam, and we're all sitting there and I remember just going, and I think there are a couple, there was just, there's a lot of plot threads. That was one of the movies that I was just in. There's so many plot threads. Um, it was very hard to follow in parts. Yeah. But I, I mean, like, the thing the thing was we were always a bit baffled by, and I, I don't understand, and this this was probably a writing choice and, and a production choice, but it was always like, why do they have to be American to go to this asylum? They didn't have to be at all from the States. And it was, I think. I imagine that was the only reason was so it did well in the States or it had an appeal in the States. 
I think that um, was the reason, yeah. Yeah, because your character, did, none of your characters needed to be American. They all could have been Australian and just yeah, perfectly made sense. I think it was a strategic, we want to do well in America film, for sure. Yeah. I mean, it was it was very interesting because I think, um, if anyone doesn't know where that's filmed, it's Callan Park. It's the old asylum that's still there. Mm-hmm. Um, it is used predominantly, I think, even you know now, I don't fully know, but um, yeah, the, it's a lot of the time it's used for filming. Mm-hmm. It's used for a lot of productions, um, but it's also got like um, you know, uh, it's supposedly haunted and everything. It's pretty much just an abandoned asylum. It's not, yeah, um, but you know, it's it's one of those cool locations, and I think, um, yeah, it's it's just it's very cool to kind of even think that you got to film there. At night, because was it overnight? Was that experience like o- like night shows completely from like uh, six pm till six am kind of deal? Um, I think so. I can't quite remember. It it there were night shoots, and it was really scary. Like it it did feel haunted. I didn't like to go to certain parts of the set by myself. Like, um, yeah. And people, I don't know if this is true, but they told stories. Some of the crew were like, "Oh, we left the camera over here, but it's moved here." So I don't know if that's all true. If it's actually haunted. <laughs> Um, but it definitely had a certain feel about it. Um, yeah. But it's a, it's a great film set. I've, I've shot another film called Committed um, at Callum Park. So big recommend. Oh, really? Yeah. I don't think I've seen Committed. No, it hasn't come out yet. No. Oh. Yeah. Um, I'll eventually <laughs> see it. Yeah, because um, yeah, I remember I, I think it's also one of those cool things because, I mean, like, obviously a lot of Australian horror is very indie. Yeah. And it is very, like... Um, you know, it, it, Australia doesn't have the best funding in terms no, of like, it's horrible. You know, we're um horrible, horrible in terms of funding, and but I think also what's really fun about that film was you know it's it's one of those you know hour and hour and twenty minutes I think it's it is an hour and twenty hour and, hour and thirty, but um the best kill is is possibly um the you know he's the main douchebag guy um. I can't remember his name, the actor's name, but yeah, Adam, he's one yeah. of the producers. Yeah. Um, and he yeah, he has barbed wire strapped to him and he gets pulled off. I'm just like, that is cool. That yeah. is hands down the coolest way to die. Cause I was just like, this comes out of nowhere. A lot of the deaths kind of in this film feel very much like you I'm not gonna spoil the film, but you kind of kind of are in this weird point where you're like, who's actually killing who? Yeah. And th- yeah. this was one of the deaths that I was like, Okay, this this is the best thing I'm watching. Yeah, this guy getting dragged off is what I'm here for. I need I need people dying left, front, and center. But I mean, like the down. I think the only down um, side of that film was like obviously, um, it did. You know, it clearly the the money ran out when it came to sound design because a lot of the location sounds ended up being in the film, which you know, like windows shutting and stuff like that. And I think, um, you know, that's that's through funding. That's entirely through you know funding and Australian, you know, market not actually because, you know, obviously people who don't know how post production works, it's you know, it's about the equivalent of what the production costs. Post prod is so expensive. Yeah. So, you know, where you save is actually using sound from set and going, okay, that'll do because it's kind of like and I feel like if that's the only thing that let that film down, that's really good. Because it means that a lot of the film can stand up on its own testament, you know, and not kind of sink. Because I know a lot of people who have heard of this film. Like, it's not kind of sunk into the background of being like... Oh, really? Oh, okay, it's a... Yeah, it's oh, a... <laughs> it's a lot of people are. <laughs> um, 
because I mentioned Raven Ravenswood, and they're like, "Oh yeah, I know that." And I'm like, "Okay." Because oh. a lot of like a lot of Australians, I think artists love indie horror. Like we have a huge love for the niche. Did you at the time though, when you were filming it, go, um, "This will be the big thing that will get me to kind of like Hollywood or something"? Or did you were you kind of in that stage, or were you just kind of like, "This is the next project, and then there will be another one, and then there will be like"? Were you feeling like there were steps rather than just one giant leap? Um, no, I didn't think it would be like my big break. Um, I knew that it was a small indie film. I knew what mm. what um the limitations and the opportunities that it would give me. I just wanted to work. I just graduated acting school. I wanted to get better. I wanted to be on set because being on set is the one thing that makes me happier than everything else. So I just wanted the experience and the and the credit. Yes. Because you're going to be strategic. I wanted the credit. Yeah. For sure. And I mean, like, and, and look, to be honest, being on any film with an IMDb credit as it's great. It like looks so good on your, your resume. I mean, the, the next film that came after that, which I have seen, um, I don't think it's public lit yet. Is Sidemonas? Um, oh, Suda, yeah, which, oh, so good. Yeah, yeah. Which was a few years later, and yeah. I mean, um, Reese, uh, genius, is phenomenal, genius. Um, but I mean, like you know, when that film happened, and it's and it's like, I don't know how he thinks up half these ideas. Mm. Uh, you know, he'll just break the industry one day, and like they'll all flock to him. But you know. Yeah. I think when when you were cast in that, like, how much did you you know, or was that kind of your introduction? Like, how how did was there an audition process, or did you kind of get recommended? So I worked with one of my uh, best friends in the whole entire world, Curtis Lee. Uh, he's an incredible writer, director, producer, everything. Um, on a film, I think the year previous to Pseudo, um, called Off with Their Heads, and Reese was the production designer on that film. Um, Reese liked what I did in that film and he offered me the role for Pseudo. So I did an audition because I'd had that relationship with Reese before. I think it was, he said that I had uh, a good emotional journey in Off With The Head. So I was able to hit a certain emotional peak. So that was necessary mm-hmm. in Pseudo. Um, yeah. So, and I've worked with that crew on several films since and Reese was my DP for Rapid and Curtis was my co-producer. Which is astonishing that, like, you know, that that kind of world collides kind yeah. of thing because, you know, hey, uh, you know th- that goes then to having such a good eye and also being the ability to have a, you know, because there are a lot of elaborate scenes in your short film. There are a lot of elaborate Did you kind of go in and be like, this is going to feel like tenfold? Like... You know, was that such an, you know, because it, it feels like for 10 minutes, there's a lot of scenes which, you know, required a lot of choreography. Oh, thank you. That's such good feedback. Um, Yeah, I knew exactly what I wanted Rapid to say. I knew exactly what I wanted it to look like, sound like. I had a very specific vision. I wanted Rapid to look and feel like a bipolar Rapid Cycling episode. And the way I did that was um, being completely honest with certain mental health experiences. So this is what a panic attack looks like. This is what a suicidal episode looks like. This is what mania looks like um, and so on. So yeah, and that was enhanced as well. So even color grading depression and anxiety is quite dark and gray. There's a lot of gray tones, whereas 
as soon as she hits into mania, it's vivid and bright and it looks like a bubblegum kind of world. Mm. Um, yeah, so, yeah, I knew exactly what I wanted Rapper to, to look like. Because you directed that as well, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, produced, wrote, directed, acted, yeah. <laughs> the whole, whole, the whole shtick. The whole thing. I mean, <laughs> I mean that's, that's extraordinary. Was that, was that your first directing thing for yourself? Uh, for myself. So I directed two plays previously, um, but this was my first gig directing a film, which was terrifying. So I was really fortunate that... I've surrounded myself with really good friends and a good team yeah. who um really helped me and were patient with me. I mean, that's, that's you know, because directing is one of those things that kind of takes and evolves over time. Yeah. And it's not, you know, and you kind of have to have the trust of your crew. Yeah. To be like, what do you think? Because there's a lot of, there's, you know, and I don't know if you hate this or well, but you know, like I, you know, when everyone goes, oh no, it's your decision. I'm like, no, don't just leave it. It's like an anxiety thing. You so just much go, anxiety. Oh. I know. Oh my God. That's like when I directed my second shot film, Blind Turn, I shot it on the Gold Coast this year. I, I only acted in one scene, but it was so much anxiety directing it. Cause I was like, <laughs> I'm so bad at making decisions. So yeah, I feel that for sure. Yeah. Cause you were, how long? the Gold Coast for before you went to London? Uh, I think it was three months just saving up some cash. Wow. Yeah. And so you directed your second second short, which, when's that come out? So we're almost on post. Uh, so that should be in a couple of months. We'll hit the film festival circuit. Oh. Was that a different crew this time or? Yeah. So I kept Stefania D. Nicola and Jeremiah Nichols. So she was my co-producer and my first AD. So I flew them up from Sydney to work on this film because Stefania is just a gun. Um, but a whole new crew, Gold Coast crew. I wanted to give Gold Coast creatives the opportunity um, to work on a film. So, yeah, that was terrifying working with people I didn't know. And it was like, and like, was that what kind of film is it? What kind of like, what are we expecting from this like little reveal? Yeah, it's a drama. It's based on a true story about my granddad. So when he was, I think he was 17, he was drafted to play professional VFL, which is now called AFL for Geelong. Wow. Yeah, a few days before his first game, he lost his arm in an accident working at a wool mill. So um, this the film is about him dealing with that trauma and then having to find a new career path because his whole life was football um, and learning how to write again because he lost his dominant hand, he lost his left arm, so learning how to write with his right hand and do things with his one arm, yeah. Wow. That's nuts. Incredible stories. Yeah, he was absolutely incredible. Yeah. Because is, is he around anymore or has he passed away? No, so he passed away a few years ago. I was lucky. I um, made a documentary about his life a year before he passed. So we never actually saw the documentary, which is really unfortunate. But I had all these interviews and these personal conversations with him, which inspired the short film. So I was so lucky to have those conversations. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, if he was still with us, I'm sure he'd be so proud. Of, I hope you so. know, like, yeah, yeah. But <laughs> I don't know if he'd also, be, you know, like, was he an easily embarrassed person? No, no, <laughs> not at all. He would have loved it. <laughs> oh, that's good. Yeah, because yeah. otherwise he would have just shied away and go, oh, geez, you know, just the limelight. I mean, now nah, leave it alone. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but no, that's good because I mean, like, you know, you want. 
I feel like that's the way to kind of push stories forward, especially when they're not our own, but they're kind of people close to us. Because, like, is that are you wanting to get more into directing as you go on? Absolutely. Um, the thing was, since since taking acting seriously in 2014, my whole life has been I've got to be a successful actor. I've got to I've got to be working. I was always doing a short film. Like I'd never not. I never didn't have a project to work on because I hustled so hard to be a successful actor. But then when COVID happened, no one was working. So I didn't have this competitive streak. I wasn't looking for the next gig because there was something Mm. going on. And I just took a step back and I looked at all these different parts of myself and I thought, hang on, I've got the skills to be able to write a short film. So that's when I wrote Rapid. And because I'd worked on all these short films previously, I had the confidence and the the confidence to direct because I know what I like in a director. I know what I, what I know what I like my set to look like and how I want to operate a set. So, um, taking the step back during COVID gave me the confidence to pursue these other creative parts of myself. Yeah. Which is fantastic. I mean, you know, do you, you feel like COVID's really defined who you are now? Yeah. Um, I think so. Like just having a sense of calm about my career as opposed to it having like holding on to it so tightly gripping that I have to be at a certain yeah. level at a certain age now I'm just like I do this because it's the way I express myself and I love it and you know if it happens it happens I, I just want to be doing things that make me happy work-life balance I love that you know not enough people have work-life balance literally uh <laughs> yeah it, sh- it should it should be written on every contract it's just please have work-life balance oh my god yeah was that because you moved to the gold coast so basically you started in sydney moved yeah. to the gold coast and then was when you were in the gold coast you were always going to move to london it was just kind of a pit stop wasn't it yes because i grew up on the gold coast so my family were there so it kind of made sense to spend some time with my family and um save some money really before making the move um because we just come out of the Sydney lockdown as well. I was like, what's the, you know, get me out of here. We, I haven't been able to leave my LGA in months. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it was just, and I, I moved to the Gold Coast as well to make Blind Turn um, with my dad, with my family. I mean, what was the reason to move to London though? What was kind of like the incentive? Was it always a big plan or was it kind of London or America or, you know, what was the go? Yeah. So my whole thing, I went to LA in 2019 to study at the Howard Fine studio. I visited Vancouver to see if that, because everyone's moving to Vancouver, all the Aussies, all the Aussie actors go to Vancouver because there's such a thriving industry there. So my ticket was booked. My visa was ready to go in 2020 and a few weeks before I was supposed to leave, COVID hit. And I'm so glad that I didn't go to Vancouver because I... I had so much anxiety. I couldn't sleep for weeks. Like I just, I've never experienced anxiety like that. And that just proved that it just wasn't meant to be. Whereas last year when I made the decision with my partner to move to London, it just filled me with so much excitement. And I just thought it just felt so right. Like Mm. I remember I caught up with my friend Ryan last year. He's an actor in London and he was talking about his life here. And I was so jealous. I was so jealous. And I think that just proved that this is meant to be because you've been there two months now yeah like what what's kind of the thing that you've discovered about London people and you know how is it kind of with networking for yourself yeah people have been really nice here I've met 
people from all over the world, which from cultures and languages that I've, I didn't experience in Australia because we're so far away. Mm. Um, people are so creative and there's so much going on. Um, I did a short film a couple of weeks into getting here. I worked with this brilliant director um, who was really patient with me as I tested out my uh, modern RP accent for the first time. So I just, I love it here. The people are so nice and there's just so much opportunity. Do you find though, like what's, because whereabouts in London are you kind of like, you know, are you kind of central London or North London or East London? Whereabouts is your constituent at the moment? Yeah, I'm in Islington. So technically North London, it's half an hour away from the city. It's, it's so easy to get everywhere. Oh, nice. Yeah, it's a really good area. Love it. I mean, like, that's, you know, have you done the tourist thing where you walked around everywhere and you were just like, Hell take photos? Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. I walked like 20K a day when I first got here, yeah. walking around, going to Harrods, seeing Buckingham Palace, doing oh, all of it. Yeah. Can I just say Harrods, best shop in the... <laughs> you just get lost. It's ridiculous. Yeah, I know. It's huge. <laughs> it's funny. Um, it's, it's, it's one of those, you know, and I feel like I remember last time I was there, I walked all the way from Buckingham Palace to Harrods to, like, you know, the Tower of London. Oh, my um, God. It's, it's a hike. so long. But, I mean, like, Tower of London is one of my favorite places to go yeah. to if anyone hasn't been. But I also go to the, you know, I don't know if it's open at the moment, but I remember seeing years ago, 2019, I went to the Globe Theatre. And, oh, oh such a beautiful theatre. Oh. So beautiful. Um, But, you know, like, also the one th I love... I love London because you can just find theatre everywhere. Yeah. Like, there's never not a theatre show on. Yeah. Like, it's just constant. And you don't get that in, like, Sydney at all. Like, you, no. you're waiting for the big things because we just saw, like, my partner and I just saw 9 to 5. And we were like, that's great. But you do feel like you go from, like, six months without a production on. Like, and all you, because they don't advertise the small ones. Whereas in London, they advertise everything. Yeah. They, uh, you know, it, if it's in a paper, it's all the art that's on. Yeah. Um, and it's whether it's the low end or the high end, they're going to advertise it. So, like, does that make you, you know, feel like – how does that make you feel as an Aussie, especially, you know, as a representation of your own country and how it visualizes art versus how another country versus, like, how they visualize art? Yeah, it's interesting you say that Sydney plays don't get – like indie theatre doesn't get the audiences they deserve because I've, I've found that some of the best plays I've ever seen have been Sydney indie productions um, at theatres such as King's Cross Theatre and um, what's it called? Flight Path Theatre. Yeah. Oh, my God. Amaz they do amazing productions. So, mm. yeah. Um, so it's exciting being in London now where there is so much admiration and respect for theaters of all shapes and sizes so I, I can't wait to do a show here can't wait <laughs> i mean like dude are you one of now those people who goes you know are you going to tell all your friends to now move to london or you know tell anyone to move to london oh. or are you going to be like nah follow your dreams follow your dreams there's um friends who are frustrated by the lack of opportunity in australia and I, I definitely encourage, like I have encouraged them to perhaps think about moving. It's a massive decision mm. um, and it's not for everyone, but um, just seeing the opportunities here, even freelancing, there's just so much work. So, and I know in Australia it can get really frustrating because you get 
an audition every six months. It's just not fair. It's it's not. No, that that's something that you, good that you raised that because how often were you getting auditions? Because you were hustling. Like I was hustling. No I was working, but I wasn't auditioning. Um, yeah, it, absolutely ridiculous because it's the Australian industry. There's a lack of opportunity, but also they use the doors are shut. It's so hard to get in. Yeah. They use the same actors for everything. And it's absurd. There's so much talent in Australia, but we're all moving away. Yeah. Because we can't crack into the industry. Yeah. I think it's really sad. Yeah. I I agree with that. I feel like we, in Australia, we're very typecast. Yeah. Um, it's very, I want to put this in the nicest possible way, but Australia, we're very white. Yeah. For a country that's massively yeah. multicultural. Um. And there tends to be, uh, you know, and and the thing I say this to a lot of people, like there is there is white and then there's white passing. And a lot of people don't understand is when you're white passing, you're still versioned in society as white because that means that you might have like ethnicity in you, but you're mostly pale. So, I mean, like a couple of my friends who are like that, even if they're cast in things, they're like, well, I don't look ethnic enough for some yeah. roles or suddenly they're like i have to put on an accent for them to even consider like you know that's i feel like we're so it's so sad that we can't just have you know natural accents like you know if you have grown up in a uh, middle eastern family mm. you know and the, you know automatically you must be like okay we'll put on a lebanese accent or an indian accent or you know just have an accent it's like why yeah because i sound like everyone else and they don't like that because it doesn't doesn't tick that box yeah it's very much a tick tick a box um industry i find it's getting better um it, it really is casting directors are doing a really good job in australia of opening doors mm. for people from various cultures which is absolutely fantastic to see so i think that our screens in australia are becoming a better representation of our society which is absolutely fantastic because I don't. I don't want to watch a show with just white, white Caucasian people. No, I know that's that's not that's not the that's not the country I grew up in. That's that that's not a reflection of the society I'm a part of. And yeah, I yeah, I think it's really great that we're making these changes. Yeah, I mean, as as an actor when you were younger as well, did you feel like you'd be typecast as a certain type of girls, or did you did you really kind of like because you know you 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 were cast as mostly killers or strange people, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is psychos, the, yeah, which is the honest <laughs> truth. Um, but did you ever feel like people would typecast you or kind of just try and put you in roles that you didn't like or you know felt make you feel uncomfortable? No, see, I still don't know what my typecast is, and everyone said you should know your typecast because that way you do roles that are your typecast, and then you expand onto doing roles that you actually want to do. I've got no, I, I, I've, I look like the girl next door, but then I get cast as the murderer because mm. I, I have, I don't know. I, I know how to do that stuff. I love doing that stuff. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, I think I do have quite a big range, so I don't like to just do one thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like I, I played a goth mortician in the web series Killer Cafe and then I played a very straight edge um, teacher in the spoils by Jesse Eisenberg. So, yeah, ugh, screw typecast. I like to do it all, you know. 
Fuck it. <laughs> I do love you in Killer Cafe. It's just such a weird. Oh, thank you. It's very you as well. Thanks. I think that that is kind of like the if if anyone's seen Izzy's eyes when she does crazy eyes. Oh boy. Yeah, it's, you're like looking into someone who's gonna slice you in this. Like, thank you, my partner. My partner Matt would definitely agree. Because <laughs> you, every time I see any image of you where you're just like, and it's true when you say, "Oh, it must be because I have you know big eyes" or anything. It's not because your eyes are big. It's because <laughs> you have this vacant stare. Oh, thank you. Yeah, just yeah. a skill. Thank you. <laughs> Absolutely terrifying. So silly. I remember. Um, the first time I saw it was actually in waiting. And I think one of my favorite parts about that is like your eyes keep moving and it's mostly, it's a weird, it's a weird film because it's like this absurdist, yeah, surrealist film. And, um, it's one of those films that when you watch it, you kind of go, okay, it's all in the, it's no one talks. It's all the, uh, not dialogue driven. And your eyes just keep twitching. <laughs> I remember every time I watched it, I was like, oh my God. This person is literally either going to kill everyone. Oh, thanks. I hadn't even finished watching the film at this stage. I was like, okay, where's this going? Like, you know, slowly ticking along. So I did like the massive twist that you end up, you know, snapping and, and going on a murderous spree. Oh, um, I mean, like, Killer, when you did Killer Cafe, though, was that meant to be, because how many episodes did you end up doing? That was quite a um, couple of episodes, wasn't it? I think it? it was five episodes, five, six. Yeah, because were you meant to do more? Was that meant to kind of continue or was that kind of always intended to be a five, six episode run? Um, So I mean, it had a lot of potential to do further seasons. I think just because of funding and opportunity, we only were able to do um season one. I think it was funded by the producer. Um, so I, I would love for it to be picked up to do further seasons. I think it has a lot of potential. It's hilarious. It's fabulous. Yeah, it's very. If, if people haven't seen it, go and watch it. It's very funny. It's um. It's on YouTube, Killer Cafe. Yeah, it's it's a musical comedy about a strange bunch of people who run a cafe and end up also just murdering people. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, and I do I do feel like you know this this comes down to the the humor that we have in Australia, which is you know and the appeal of Australian indie scene which I want to talk a bit about because we have this unique way of thinking which seems to be internationally loved, but the moment it's in our own country, it's not viable. Mm. It's not received well. Like it, It's not the audience who's watching it. It's the executives. It's the, oh, no one here wants that. So, But I'm like, clearly there's an audience yeah. because there's traction. Um, but obviously like, um, I know several productions that have not been funded properly or, you know, if they are funded, you know, kudos to them because they've been very lucky, but it always feels like, um, every time you talk to these people and, you know, you have these conversations with, you know, people that's like, how did you get the funding? They often say it was just right time. Yeah. They just happened to be there the right time and they got the funding and then they were like, Otherwise, if it was any other time, I reckon we wouldn't have. It's luck. It's so much luck. Like when you when you were thinking about, like especially with your own film, did you did you feel like did you have this stress of am I going to raise everything that I in terms of finance that are you like what was going through your brain as a producer and as a creator? Yeah, um, I looked at every 
<laughs> opportunity for short film grants, nothing in Australia. Mm. Yeah. So it was really disappointing that we just didn't have um, any support for short films, especially about mental illness. Um, so I crowdfunded a portion of Rapid and then I self-funded the rest, um, which is fantastic. I think that's what I was supposed to do. It was my story. I wanted, this is what I want to spend my money on, you know? Yeah. Um, so, but it, there's all these other amazing film ideas that people have and it's like, we just don't have the support. It's ridiculous. Mm. People want to watch it. We've got so much talent, but we're just funding certain things that don't have a wide recipro reciprocating audience. I, it's one of those things that I feel like, you know, even even if you do like films that are about mental illness and about like you know, you know, rights between people or culturalism, you know, sexism or you know. Um, the LGBTQIA plus community, the problem is, you know, it just, not everyone's, you know, going, and I think this comes from how strapped everyone is to an economy of capitalism in Australia. Right. We're very much a capitalistic society here. It's everyone keeps their wallets tight mm. and doesn't, you know, and, and I, I remember growing up like that as well, like, you know, I remember, and I was chatting about this actually literally like, you know, before we came on um, to record. And I just was like, it's one of those things that I think about. And I'm like, I remember training and the way you funded a project was your own money. As a producer, you just put your own money in it. No one else contributed. That was life. Mm. And it's not viable. It's, no. it's not. It's crazy because, you know, you need... Um, backers, you need contributors, you need like, uh, you know, because things cost, but also because of the cost of living, because of freelance, um, you know, get heavily GST'd and, you know, and taxed, they need that extra, you know, percentage so that they can get, you know, not cop a huge loss. And, um, you know, and it's just the, the expenses of keeping up with insurance, keeping up with schemes, mm. you know, it's nuts. Like there's no... You know, especially for us who have made films on the cheaper side, you know, imagine like just making films with a billion dollars, like, or even a million, like the, the stress is astronomical. I wouldn't even know what to do with that level of money if it didn't come initially from like my own pocket, because it's, there's this level of, you know, I guess the level of trust that you have to have with knowing that the money will go to the right places and that it's going to go into the things that matter like how were you um at that knowing when it's right and when it's not right are you very good at deciding to know when that's not perfect or that's not going to be where the money should be spent um definitely I'm very um strategic and I like to do a lot of research so um I knew exactly where I wanted every dollar of rapid to go mm. yeah and I think expanding on what you're saying I think it comes down to what we as a society value because um, the government doesn't give much funding to the arts yet everyone's watching film and TV and that's film and TV is what is shaping conversations that we're having about change and giving voices to underrepresented communities. There's we're valued. We are valuable to society. We're contributing to society. We give so many jobs to people. So 
we need we need the opportunities. We need the money. Give us the money. Come on, we're give us the we're money, please, industry. people, please. Like, yeah, yeah. Storytelling is important. Like, where do you see yourself in the next five years? That's a really interesting question. Um, I don't believe. Well, from what I've learned, can't plan. Um, you just can't plan. I don't know where where I will be. I don't know. I mean, I'm currently working, um, with autistic students and absolutely love it. So I don't know if I'll be pursuing that in five years time. Um, I don't know if I, if I'll have a, a catalog of feature films behind me. I don't know if I'll be working on a TV show. I'm just gonna, I, I'm at this point where I'm just so relaxed. I'm just leaving it up to what the universe has in store for me which sounds very airy-fairy, but I haven't had this before. I've been gripping onto it so tightly, but um, I didn't know this time last year that I'd be in London pursuing my career. Yeah. So if it's, I'm just letting it happen, letting it unfold as um, it goes on and I'm not lim- limiting myself and I'm exploring all my different interests. I love that. You are, you are the most interesting insightful person oh, in so many levels. I don't think so, but thank you. <laughs> you're like, nah, nah, I don't know who you're talking about. Someone else. From the Gold Coast, mate. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I do, I do honestly think that because I love that you always are so passionate. You've always been there um, from the m- moment I first met you. You were just this um, hustle bustle professional, but sweet and, and nurturing oh, nature you. about you. And oh. whatever you do and whatever you touch will be amazing. And I just see that for the rest of your That's life. That's so nice. Thank you. You're going you're gonna to smash it. You're going to smash it. You're going to make it amazing, um, you know, marks on this world. That's lovely. Thank you. I really appreciate that. No, anytime. Um, I think that is the perfect point for us to wrap up. Um, Izzy, before, mm-hmm. before we go, I'm going to ask you, where can people find you on the internet? Where is the best place to stalk you? Um, I would say, like everyone, go Instagram. I think my, um, whatever it's called, is at Isabel Dixon underscore. But I encourage you to go to YouTube, Google, uh, search Rapid, a short film about bipolar disorder, and start there. Watch watch my film. Yes. <laughs> it will be in the link oh, below um, as well. It will be in the episode description. Go, on, go and watch um, the film. It is amazing. Um and yeah, I, I'm really, I'm really glad you made it. I'm really glad it it did well. Thank you. Um, and yeah, it's, there's not as many people like you in the world and there needs oh, to be more. So nice. Absolutely. There needs to be way more. Thank you. so. Oh my God. <laughs> I can't accept compliments. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> I'm just like so much Dying. love for you. So it's, it's oh, you're just like, I don't know what right to back do. At you. Um, right back at you. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, and if you want to go check out more episodes of the things we do, you can check them out on Apple and Spotify. I will be speaking with another guest next week and I'll speak to you all later. Goodbye. Goodbye.